Lord Jesus, thank you so much for children. Uh, thank you for the chance that we have to come here uh, and to act like children before our Heavenly Father and to worship you, uh, to thank you for what you've done for us and to blindly trust you with the future of our lives and with the future of this church. Uh, Lord, I ask that as uh, we open our Bibles this morning that you would move in us and that you would move through your scripture uh, and impact our hearts and our minds. Uh, Lord, my, my request to you is that we can leave here knowing you a little better and being willing to show your love to the world around us. Lord, thank you for, for what you're doing here in our midst. In your name, amen. Uh, a holiday tradition at my house is puzzles. Anybody like puzzles here? You're like, wow, okay, a lot of you like puzzles. You should come over to my house during holiday season time because puzzles are kind of a big deal. And I have to confess, puzzles aren't really my thing. And there's a specific reason why. I like the idea of sitting at the table and drinking hot, deli delicious beverages and talking and having fun while we do like a game. That all sounds great. But the problem with puzzles for me is that I get so focused on one little piece that I will sit there and scratch my head and look and look and look, and I can never find it. And, and there's a reason why. The reason why is I have a hard time zooming out, okay, to zoom out. And I've noticed that my wife is an expert puzzler, not me puzz puzzling me. She, she does well with puzzles. I don't know what you call that. She does well with puzzles. And I've noticed her. She didn't know I was going to say this, but I've noticed the way she acts around puzzles. She takes the piece, and then she takes the box, and she goes like this. <laughs> and then she knows right where that puzzle piece goes. And I've tried that. I just can't stay focused. I can't stay focused on the big picture. I want to zoom in. And I'm sitting here looking at a little puzzle piece going, I think that's a tip of a rose, a flower plant, and a horse's hoof and maybe a star. I got no idea where that thing goes. That's me. Well, puzzle pieces, zooming out and looking at the big picture of life is, is where we're headed with this new series, um, Redemption. This story is not only a fascinating story about two women and, and a man, Boaz, in the scripture. It is a story of God's redemption for his people and for us. And we can zoom out and we can see this thing uh, and it's amazing. It's breathtaking. Um, another thing about Ruth is it is very artistic. The way the book was written, it's very poetic, and it, and it has components of a love story that is romantic and fun and exciting, and we don't really know what's going to happen unless you've read through it already, but it's, it's an artistic piece. And so with that being said, I actually want to read every word in the book to you, not all at once, don't worry. We're going to take it chapter by chapter, and we're going to do four weeks of it, okay? So I'm going to read to you um, this first chapter, and I want you to follow along with me if you'd like. Um, book of Ruth, uh, right after the book of Judges, and um, I'm going to read the whole chapter to you. And if you don't have your Bible in front of you, just sit back and listen. Close your eyes. I'm not going to put the words up because I, I want you to hear some of the artistic flavors in this, in this book, okay? So here we go. The book of Ruth right after uh, the book of Judges. Uh, chapter 1, verse 1, it says, In the days when the judges ruled, there was a famine in the land, and a man from Bethlehem in Judea, together with his wife and two sons, went to live for a while in the country of Moab. The man's name was Elimelech, his wife's name was Naomi, and his, the names of his two sons were Melion and Kilion. And they were Ephrathites from Bethlehem, Judah. And they went to Moab to live there. Okay, setting up the story. Makes sense. Now Elimelech, Naomi's husband, died, and she was left with her two sons. 
They married Moabite women named Orpah and the other Ruth. After they lived there about 10 years, both Milion and Kilion also died. And Naomi was left without her two sons and her husband. A brutal way to open the first scene of this movie. Verse 6, then she heard in Moab that the Lord had come to the aid of his people, providing food for them. Naomi and her daughters-in-law prepared to return home from there. With her two daughters-in-law, she left the place where they had been living and set out on the road that would take them back to the land of Judah. Then Naomi said to her two daughters-in-law, go back, each of you, to your mother's home. May the Lord show, you, show kindness to you as you have shown to your dead and to me. May the Lord grant each of you, uh, you will find rest in the home of another husband. Then she kissed them and they wept aloud and said to her, we will go back with you to your people. But Naomi said, return home, my daughters. Why would you come with me? Am I going to have more sons who could become your husbands? Return home, my daughters. I am too old to have a husband. Even if I thought there was still hope for me, even if I had a husband tonight and then gave birth to sons, would you wait until they grew up? Would you remain unmarried for them? No, my daughters, it's bitter for me. It's more bitter for me than for you because the Lord, Lord's hand has gone out against me. At this, they wept again. Then Orpah kissed her mother-in-law goodbye, but Ruth clung to her. Look, said Naomi, your sister-in-law is going back to her people and her gods. Go back with her. But Ruth replied, don't urge me to leave you or to turn back from you. Where you go, I will go. And where you stay, I will stay. Your people will be my people and your God, my God. Where you die, I will die. And there I will be buried. May the Lord deal with me, be it ever so severely, if anything but death separates you and me. When Naomi realized that Ruth was determined to go with her, she stopped urging her. So the two women went on until they came to Bethlehem. When they arrived in Bethlehem, the whole town was stirred because of them. And the women exclaimed, can this be Naomi? Don't call me Naomi, she told them. Call me Mara. Because the Almighty has made my life very bitter. Hmm. I went away full, but the Lord has brought me back empty. Why call, why call me Naomi? The Lord has afflicted me, and the Almighty has brought misfortune upon me. And the transitional verse, so Naomi returned to Moab, accompanied by Ruth, or returned from Moab, accompanied by Ruth, the Moabitess, her daughter-in-law, arriving in Bethlehem as the barley harvest was beginning. That is the end of the chapter. I don't know about you, I've read that chapter about a hundred times this week, and I want to continue. It's like, oh, okay, what happens next? The, 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 the artist, artistry of this is just fascinating. But I want to take a quick look at just what's happening in the story. And, and kind of, I like to break things out into a couple of sections. So the first section is, is, a, is a setting the scene section. This is like, have you ever noticed in a movie, you watch a movie and in the first like five minutes of some films, it's like so much stuff happens. It's because the film writers are trying to catch you up to speed on what's happening in this story. Well, that's exactly what happens in the book of Ruth. All this stuff happens in the first section, in the first two verses. And if you've noticed, um, it's kind of a cruel entry to the story. 
you have this woman, she has a husband and two sons, and everything is going well except this famine, and they try to compensate. They go to a place where they think there's food, and basically everyone dies. That's a brutal way to start. And if you go, this is just irony, if you go back one verse from chapter 1, so you're in Judges 21, verse 25, the last line of the previous book. Now, we know that the the timeline doesn't work out like that. So we're talking about the time of Judges. But it's just interesting. If you go back to that verse, it says, in those days, Israel had no king, and everyone did as they saw fit. And then the book of Ruth starts, and it's in the time of the Judges. And so you have this idea that this is, this is almost anarchy. Everyone does what they want. It is a hard time. It is an incredibly dangerous time to be a woman and to be a woman alone and to be three women on a road traveling. That's like the worst possible scenario you could have in this time. But here they are. It's a dangerous and cruel world. Tragedy strikes. They are left alone. And this tragedy marks, for the first time, who Naomi is. And we get to see a little bit of her identity and who she is as a woman. And she is interesting. She is fascinating. She doesn't shy away from what's happened to her. Did you catch that? She doesn't um, um, sugarcoat anything. She doesn't put on a good face. She doesn't stay positive in the time of, of, of frustration or anger. She, she tells it like it is. And I think that's to her credit. She not only doesn't shy away from tragedy and who she thinks is responsible for that tragedy, she actually protects her daughter-in-laws from herself. Did you, did, you, did you catch that when we read it? She shows consideration for her daughter-in-laws. It's almost like she's saying, I'm a black hole of grief, and I'm dangerous. And I'm, I'm telling you right now, God did this to me. So it's better for you guys if you leave. So in her grief, in her transparency, she's caring for her two daughters. It, so... The loving hand of God finally shows up. It's almost like we're suffocating. We're like, okay, where's the hope? Where's the hope? Where's the hope? What's going to happen? Where's the light at the end of the tunnel for this poor woman? And it doesn't come the way you might expect. It comes by way of her daughter-in-law, Ruth. And if you caught it, we're going to read it again in a second. Ruth clung to her mother-in-law. Now, why in the world would anybody in this situation do that? Ruth is not only putting herself at an immediate danger for the journey that lies ahead, she is giving up her life. She is giving up her future. She's giving up for any hope that she has of having children, of having a family, of having any kind of comfort. It doesn't matter where you live in, in this time period. If you are a woman and you are a foreigner, and you have no hope for marriage, you are at the bottom of the totem pole. There's no one that's going to take care of you. In fact, there are people that will try to take advantage of you. That's what Ruth is giving up. And so you have this kind of spark of hope of all of a sudden this this God-shaped hand that looks like Ruth show up, and Naomi decides not to, to, to quit arguing with her. Okay, 
You want to sacrifice your life for me in my black hole of misery and grief? Fine. I'm going to stop trying to convince you that it's not the best thing for you. Now, I want to read this to you again. I want to read this section to you. I'm going to actually put the words on the screen this time, and I want you to follow along. Listen to Ruth's words as if they were God talking to Naomi. But Ruth replied in verse 16 of of chapter 1, Don't urge me to leave you or turn back from you. Where you go, I will go. Where you stay, I will stay. Your people will be my people and your God, my God. Where you die, I will die and where... You will be aware, um, and there I will be buried. And maybe the most fascinating piece, may the Lord, who Ruth doesn't seem to know very well, may the Lord deal with me, be it ever so severely, if anything but death separates you and me. This is almost like a wedding vow. She is taking a vow to always be with this now distant and and, and, uh, uh, estranged mother-in-law, estranged in the sense that only marriage bound them, and that marriage is gone. So you have this strange relationship, and Ruth does this strange thing. And, And honestly, there's no real textual reason why this happens. There's no real reason. It's not like we have this subplot going on and and Ruth has this amazing relationship with God and God is moving in her and and God has said, hey, Ruth, do this thing for Naomi. We We don't have that backstory. We don't know if that's true or not. The only thing we're left with is that Ruth decides to give herself up for her mother in law. And there's no real reason. She's signing up for hardship. She's signing up for pain and potentially early death, to be honest with you. That's what she's sacrificing. The interesting thing about this story is that tragedy strikes, and it strikes hard and early. And that tragedy reminds us, if we're honest, with the potential tragedy of our lives. And, 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 and if we've never really experienced real tragedy, like deep, hard, never get over, be scarred for life type tragedy, I think the reaction is we just hope it doesn't happen to us. We just say, hey, I, I really hope that that's really horrible that it happened to that person, and I really hope it doesn't happen to me. It's almost like hide under a rock, and maybe big, big tragedy like this won't happen to you. However... If we look to the one who is in control of our bigger picture, we start to prepare ourselves. And I'm not talking about a doomsday preparation where you're just, you know, there's tragedy around every corner. But if we look to the one who's in control of our story, we begin to practice this faith thing, this trust thing. And and we can start to, to come up with hope based on this being and his control of us. We actually see evidence of this in Naomi. And you might say, oh my gosh, Naomi, she, she's the one that's incredibly bitter and that is blaming God for this tragedy. And that's kind of a risky theology right now in our, in our world. Naomi doesn't, doesn't hide the fact that she really believes that God did this to her, at a minimum, allowed it to happen. And, and I even kind of go, whoa, that's, that's an extreme theology. Naomi's not holding back about it. That's what she believes. And she goes on into Bethlehem and to tell the women that will listen to her, God did this to me. 
so you should call me Mara. But we see this ability, well, we will eventually see, I should say, this ability Naomi has at starting to pull back and see the bigger picture. When things get really tragic for Naomi, what does she do? And we don't have a lot of information because the, the, the story's moving quickly. But this is what she does. One, she's transparent about how she's feeling. There's no one that wonders how Naomi feels about the life that she's lived and the situation she finds herself in. No one has to wonder. It's not like anybody's coming up to Naomi going, hey, could you be a little more transparent about how you feel? I'm not really sure how you're feeling about this tragedy. She's, she's basically shouting it from the rooftops. She's transparent about what's happening to her. But then she does something interesting. She does not become a stumbling block for those around her especially her dear, sweet, and also victims, her daughter-in-laws. She protects them. In her grief, in her tragedy, she refuses to become a stumbling block, so much so that she sends them away and says, I don't want to affect you. It's worse for me than it is for you because you can start over. So go away. Don't help me in my grief. Then Naomi turns to the right person for hope. And you go, I, I didn't read hope in that. Her words were pretty bitter. But she does. When she hears where that person is, she pursues him. Did you catch that in the story? She heard from a distance that God is looking favorably to Bethlehem and to Judah, to Israel. And she says, I'm going there. I'm risking everything I have left. My very life, I am going to him. She pursues him. The thing is, Naomi lets God tell her story. And I think this works for us pretty easily when God does amazing things in our life, right? Oh, I'm so blessed. I'm so blessed. I have a wonderful house and a family and a car and a job, and I'm so blessed. Everything's great. But what happens when life falls apart? Is it God's responsibility then? That's what Naomi thinks. Naomi lets God tell her story. The good, the bad, the ugly, the frustrating, the bitter, the anger, she lets God tell it. And we know from the reader's perspective that there's a lot of hope waiting for Naomi. In fact, spoiler alert, God blesses Naomi so much that she goes down in history as one of the most blessed women because of who comes through her line by way of Ruth. It's amazing how blessed, and, and I wish I could read it to you, but I don't want to spoil it completely. The last line of this book brings tears to my eyes because of what God has done for Naomi. She lets God tell her story. It's really, really hard, almost impossible, for us to take the, 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 the puzzle piece and the box and do this in the time of tragedy. The only thing we can do is seemingly focus on this little puzzle piece, and, and, and everything seems to be falling apart. And the truth is, is, is we can't see the big picture. We can't, not, not even with this. This gives us some indications of the big picture, but it's not the complete big picture. I can't read in here and go, oh, great. 
uh, when my wife gets cancer, this is what happens, and my life is going to be okay. It's not specific. The only thing that's really specific about this is who is in control and who is in charge. And Naomi finds out. Naomi doesn't even have the scripture. She has a, a small portion of it, maybe, if she's got a good relationship with her rabbi. But she runs after the one who's in control of her big picture. The direction of her life was his responsibility and his responsibility alone, including the tragedy. This is not a recipe for painkillers. I'm not standing up here telling you when tragedy strikes, if you do this, you will feel better. It does not feel better. I'm not giving you a recipe for success in, in avoiding a tragedy. That's not what the book of Ruth is about. It's not about avoiding tragedy. It's about how we respond when tragedy happens. This is the idea that I want us to leave with this morning. If you, if you remember nothing else, remember this. Hope is produced when we let God tell our story. Hope is produced when God tells our story and we let him tell that story. It produces hope in us. And the book of Ruth is this artistic story of, of almost no hope and this little spark in this little foreigner named Ruth and it starts to grow and grow, and the circumstances change, and God seems to bless this story. And by the end, it's this amazing evidence of what God has done in the life of Naomi. See, Naomi's gift in the end is not just a gift to Naomi. It's a gift to mankind. That's how powerful God's gift is. Hope is produced when we let God tell our story. The sad thing, you may say, well, why is that so important for me to understand or for me to remember? Here's, here's why. Because there's substitutionary hope out there. There's fake hope out there that you can latch onto. And people do it all the time. I've done this before in my life. There's counterfeit hope. The fleeting, hollow hope that we can somehow just get obsessed with. You can, you can get hope and success. How successful are you at your job or, or the business that you're running or, or whatever it is you're doing? If you're successful, you can take counterfeit hope from that and say, see, it's going to be okay because I got this thing. I got this ability. I, I can make this money, and, and money seems to just make all of our problems go away, right? Well, we laugh at that, but, but that's really how we think sometimes. You can find fake hope in wealth. Tragedy strikes, but it's okay. I've got my 401k. I've got my retirement. It's okay. Tragedy strikes and you say, well, I got a lot of stuff at home. I'm going to put my hope in stuff. If I get that next thing, if I get that next car, if I get that next piece of wealth, I'm going to be okay. And when I, when I present it to you like this, it just seems crazy. But this is really how we work. Here's one. Tragedy strikes, but, but I have that relationship. I've got that relationship. I've got that friend. I've got that, that, that family member. I've got that spouse. And everything's going to be okay if I just lash myself onto that thing and I suck all the hope that I can out of that. 
Unfortunately, that's fake hope. The problem is, and why this is so important, is sometimes, and a lot of times, those things don't last. The wealth fades. The relationships fall apart. It can happen. The wealth burns up in, in a stock market crash, whatever. And then you finally realize that the thing that you've desperately been trying to attain will not provide hope. And this is the cruel nature of this. Once you realize that, you're worse off than when you started. The hope that you thought you have, now you find yourself even less, having less hope than when you even started this process. That's the, that's the nasty poison of sin. It makes it worse. And I, and I know people like this. I know people that have put everything they have into the success of their business or everything they have into their retirement or everything they have into their spouse. Now, that sounds like a good thing. And it is when you're honoring God. But if you get your hope from that, things can change. And all of a sudden, that hope fades. I know people that have put their, put their hope in these things, and when those things fade, they look at me and they go, my life's over. I don't know, I don't know what to do. I don't know where to turn to. And they find themselves so hopeless. Why do we need to know this? Why do we need to know that hope is produced by letting God tell our story? Naomi could have looked at her two daughter-in-laws as places to take her hope from, and she could have sucked them dry. And I see relationships working like this all around us. I don't have any hope. At least I got my daughter-in-laws with me. They can help me. No, they couldn't. She could have looked for her, to her daughter-in-laws for hope. The fact is that she, did not, she not only didn't look to them for hope, she knew that if they hung out with her long enough, their hope would be gone. So she sent them away. During her grief, she's thinking about others. Hope is produced when we let God tell our story. Listen to what Chuck Swindoll had to say about this type of situation. God oftentimes uses people and out of our life to comfort you. I'm sorry, I'm reading the wrong quote. He longs, Chuck Waddell says, he longs to relieve our worries and has promised to supply our most fundamental needs. It's a man that has dedicated his life to studying the scripture and who God is. And that's what he has to say about hope. This is who God is. He longs to supply our needs. So how do we have hope? The question now is, how do we let God tell our story? I've been shouting from the rooftops for 30 minutes now how do we, to let God tell our story. How do we do that? What does it actually look like? We can't just walk around and go, oh, well, God's going to tell my story. It's okay. Life doesn't work that way. So what do we need to do about it? Well, I think it's safe to say just from this chapter that we need to be like Naomi and ironically, Naomi is incredibly bitter and frustrated in this first chapter. But we need to be like Naomi. The first thing we need to do is we need to be willing to be transparent 
about our life. Be willing to be transparent about our life. We can't be fake. And it's a big temptation for me because it's so much easier when I see you in the hallway and you say, how's it going? And for me to go, that's great. Everything's great. Tragedy struck me hard last week, but I'm fine. I'm fine. It's no big deal. And, and in fact, our world tries to convince us that if we have this kind of attitude of just laissez-faire, it's no big deal. I'll just get through it. We'll work it out. The sun will come up tomorrow. Everything will be okay. And it actually hurts us. And this is something that we can take from Jewish culture and that we can take from Naomi, is she's real. <laughs> she is real. She's the kind of woman, when you walk by her in the hallway and say, how's it going? She says, come here. I'm going to tell you what life's like right now. And you need to sit down for this. You might want to avoid her in the hallway. But interestingly enough, the people in Bethlehem didn't avoid her. It doesn't say that they avoid her. They were very curious. What happened? What's going on? She let them have it. Be like Naomi. Be willing to be transparent about your life. That's the first thing. The second thing, be willing to travel toward God. I think we have this assumption that we're always supposed to be happy, and they're always supposed to be willing to trust God. And it should just work out with these rainbows and smiles and sunshine. Everything's going to be fine. If I, just, if I just travel towards God, everything will be fine. Well, here we have this picture of this woman that has lost everything, and she still travels towards God. Ironically, not ironically, interestingly, she travels towards the God she thinks did this to her. Now, logically, if you really thought this God did this to you, would you want to pursue him? Naomi does. Naomi does. Naomi has this attitude of, I can't wait to see how Yahweh fixes this problem. I can't wait to see it because I'm hurting and my pain is real and I'm going to tell everybody about it. Be willing to travel toward God. Pursue him. Desire closeness with him. He is the only, this is so important, he is the only one that can give you comfort and hope. And you might say, whoa, 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 I have these friends around me. I have my life group around me. And they provide hope for me, and they provide comfort. And I love that, but it's not from them. That's the hand of God moving through them because they're willing to be agents of God's love for you. So don't get hung up on the people around you providing hope to you. I can't tell you how many times I've done this to my poor wife. I'm going to take hope from her. And she's like, I'm supposed to just give this to you? I don't, I don't even know if I have it. I look to God for hope. And I am so thankful when he chooses my wife to give me that hope. That's, that's, you can take that to the bank. That's important. See, the interesting thing is God provides hope, and he chooses different vessels to give you that hope. He chooses your spouse he chooses your friends sometimes. He chooses your pastor. Oh my goodness, what a shocker. He does. He chooses these different ways. And when you receive that, you can't be fooled into thinking it came from your wealth or your success or your, or your relationships or anything else. Don't be fooled. It's from him. That's how he does it. The third thing, be willing to trust him to fix it. And those are dangerous words to some people in this room because tragedy has struck here before 
and it is brutal. But I'm here to tell you, God will fix it. I don't know when. It might not even be in this lifetime. And I don't know how. I can guarantee you Naomi had no idea what was going to happen. She has no idea. That's kind of the fun of the story because we know. She's got no idea. She, she doesn't even have the capacity or the imagination to figure out how God is going to bless her. That's who he is. And you might be sitting here today with a broken heart and no hope for the future. And you could be even getting mad at me for telling you that God's going to fix this. Because there's no hope. You have no hope. But this is what I have to say. The Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end, the one who calls himself the I Am desperately loves you. And I don't know why. He's not explainable. We can't t- I can't tell you why he's let things happen. It doesn't even seem like Naomi's asking him why. But he loves you. And he promises to fix it. He is the one who sets every wrong right. If you're still wondering, if you're wondering why we need to be transparent, if we need to travel towards God and we need to trust him, I'll say if you don't do those things, your hope will be fleeting. And when you need it the most, it'll dissipate into thin air. And you'll be left so hopeless that you don't even know where to turn. I've walked with so many friends through that. And I've been there myself. I don't know where to turn. But if we are transparent, if we travel towards God, and if we, if we have hope that he will fix it, if we trust him to fix it, You'll get to see God, you will intimately get to see God do something that God has been doing since the beginning of time. In fact, God is defined in a lot of ways in Scripture by what he's doing, and that is taking chaos, taking nothing, and producing hope, producing something beautiful. He, ta- he goes from nothing to producing things that were designed to receive his love. If you do these things, you will see God do this. And you might be on your, you, you might be gone. You might be on your deathbed. Maybe beyond until you see the end of your story. But I'm here to tell you, this God likes to take chaos and make something beautiful. We get the chance to take communion this morning. And like God seems to always do, communion is one of those things that's so translatable into what we believe, into what we think. And if you're sitting here going, I don't have much hope, or my friend doesn't have any hope, I'm trying to figure out how to help them, what communion is designed to do is to get us to focus on the only thing that produces hope, and his name is Jesus. See, by taking communion, we're saying, I can't fix this. That's Naomi standing on a a dangerous wilderness road going, I've got nothing. 
I have no ability. I can't fix my life. This tragedy has now defined me, and I'm never going to heal from it. But Jesus can. And that's what communion is designed to force us into doing. It's a practice that we practice. So we're constantly going, yes, we get our hope from the one who paid, uh, paid our debt on our behalf, loves us so much that he sacrificed himself for us. And, and we're supposed to do this, ironically, until he comes back, until he sets everything right. So this is a perfect opportunity for us to say, I can't fix it. But I know the one who can, and he started the fixing by dying for me on the cross. If you've never placed your faith in Jesus before, maybe a friend drug you to church this morning, or a, a grandmother that you just can't say no to. <laughs> I have one of those. This is meaningless to you. It's, it's a tradition that won't matter to you if you partake, if you feel peer pressure to jump in and do it. It's not going to matter. But I'm here to tell you, if you've never placed your faith in Jesus, you're not going to get a better opportunity. Placing your faith in Jesus is you saying, I'm messed up and I can't make it right. And I trust that by him dying on the cross, he makes it right in me. I trust him. It's an admission of trust. If you're new or maybe you've never taken communion with us before here at Grace, um, this is how we'll do it. I'm going to read a passage uh, the Apostle Paul wrote about communion, and I'm going to pray, and then I'm going to take communion and, and as the band plays, and, and I want you to be patient. It, it doesn't have to happen right away. Think about it. Think about the words. Think about what communion is to you and, and, and what it means to you. And when you feel like, okay, I'm, I'm ready to say publicly, God is going to fix my life one day. I can't do it without him. I'm going to do this to make, make myself remember that he's the one. When that happens in your mind, line up here in the middle. And this is a serious thing. This is a big deal that he gave us this, this ability to remember. So line up and take it together. And if you have dietary restrictions, we have gluten on my right, your left, so you can, you can partake in this tradition without it hurting you. Let me read this passage to you. Apostle Paul in 1 Corinthians 11, 23 through 26 says, For I, Paul, have received from the Lord what I also pass on to you. The Lord Jesus, on the night he was betrayed, took bread, and when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, This is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. And if Naomi was here, she would be fighting for the front row to get to it. In the same way, after supper, he took the cup, saying, This cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this whenever you drink it in remembrance of me. For whenever you eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, thank you that we have this thing uh, called communion that will, that will kind of force us to remember what you've done for us. And it's what you've done for us individually, for sure, individually, but it's also what you've done for us corporately, what you've done for us as a church, that you loved us so much that you gave yourself up for us. Lord, I ask that um, if there's any person 
in this room this morning that's wondering, that's wondering if they've placed, it's, it can be confusing, if they've placed trust in you. I ask that you would move in their hearts, that you would encourage them to trust you for the first time, and that this would be their first communion. Such a wonderful gift, the thing that you have done for us. So we give you honor and praise for it. Jesus, we love you. And in your name, amen.